Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode is brought to you by Dezank Books, publisher of the story collection A Girl Goes Into the Forest by Peg Alford Purcell. It is the official July pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Purcell's sophomore collection centers on mothers, daughters, and the myth of the American girl. Ramona Ozabel, author of Awayland, calls it, quote, as beautiful and fine as a string of pearls and as complex as a thousand-piece puzzle. And Kirkus Reviews raves, quote, Purcell is a master of the atmospheric moment. A Girl Goes Into the Forest, the new story collection by Peg Alford Purcell, on sale July 16th from Dezank Books. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer can do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. I just caught my mail. Dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. Your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hello, hello, hey. How's it going, everybody? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. This is the Other People Podcast. It is good to be with you. And uh, I'm excited. I have Steve Almond back on the program for, I believe, the fourth time. He's one of my favorite writers. He's one of uh, my favorite people to talk with. It's an incredible brain uh, that this guy has. And uh, I don't know. It's always just a joy. He has a new book out called William Stoner and the Battle for the Inner Life. It is available from IG Publishing. It is about Stoner the 1965 novel by American writer John Williams. Perhaps you've heard of it. Perhaps you've read it. It is a cult classic. I think it's like transitioning right now. It's a cult classic that is transitioning to American classic and perhaps even like global literary classic, full stop. Uh, something I did not know about Stoner is that it has a huge audience in Europe which Steve goes over in the book. I must also confess that I have not read Stoner, but it's now on my short list of things to do after reading Steve's book, which is, uh, as I said, it's about the, the novel, the John Williams novel, but it's also about the thematic concerns of the novel and how they relate to our current uh, existence. It's about Steve's life in a deeply personal way. I think this is the most personal Steve Allman book that I've read. This is a 
uh, a book that it exudes intelligence, which is a characteristic of all of Steve's work, humor, but this is also uh, very heartfelt, deeply personal, and it packs a punch in the best way. So I really enjoyed it. I always love talking with Steve, and uh, I'm excited to share our conversation with you. So let's get to it. This is Steve Almond, and his new book, One More Time, is called William Stoner and the Battle for the Inner Life. So when I teach, I'm lucky enough to be able to teach Joan Didion, Nora Ephron, and, and David Foster Wallace, and I teach to this population of journalists, like I write about in the book, who are all far more professionally accomplished as journalists than I am, which is not a high bar, but they're like real badasses in their world. And I get to sort of say to them, well, what about all the stuff, all the memories, all the quotes, all the things you've seen that are in the portal of your past that like don't fit into the narrow margins of your institutional work? What about those experiences? What about how can you recollect them and pluck meaning from that rush of experience? And that's all that those great essayists are doing. And I I think it, the trick is, and I've thought about this for a while, it's like, well, they're just more interested in what they're looking at, whether it's their own experience or some question like David Foster Wallace goes to the main lobster festival and he just becomes preoccupied by a basic moral and ethical question. Is it okay to torture an animal and then eat it for our own gustatory pleasure? And he just becomes more interested in that or Nora Ephron is more interested in how gender was defined and how she felt that growing breasts were the only thing that would convincingly make her female in, in, uh, in the culture we live in. And that becomes more interesting than anything else that like in the ego drama of am I good or am I good writer? Am I interesting to the reader? I feel like so much of what I have realized about trying to write is that when I'm engaged, like every bad decision at the keyboard is is born of insecurity. And that insecurity takes a very particular form. You get preoccupied with the question of your own worthiness and whether you're interesting. And that distracts your attention from where it's supposed to be, which is the struggle that you're writing about, whether it's in your personal experience or disguised somehow in fiction and in the struggle of your characters. And that leads to every variety of bad decision. But my job is for it to not be a trick. It's just for me genuinely to be more interested in what I'm writing about, in this case, Stoner and everything that novel kind of opens up in me and around me than I am interested in like, am I entertaining the reader? That being said, I do feel like like it's interesting that you're 20 pages from the end and, and as an experiment in how you read and how deeply you read and then how you kind of talk about that on the podcast, I kind of want to say like read the last 20 pages and then let me know what you think because as much as I'm trying to think about things and sort of put my mind on the page, the last 20 pages of this book is like the most personal thing I think I've written because it's it just goes deeper into – my mother's death, my own complicated feelings about death and about kind of what we're up to on the planet in, in a way that is certainly has to do with the culture at large, but really has to do with the inner life, with the kind of private, the little private set of yearnings and fears and desires that we're just carrying around and experiencing all the time, whether we like it or not. Well, and that and that honors the book that your book is built around or is uh, grappling with. I feel like... Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, that stoner is a portrait of a man who is uh, confronted with a lot of those same concerns. Uh, and, and, you know, it's not uh, necessarily a happy book. 
And I got to confess too, I have not read Stoner, but I will. Yeah. I will now. Your book has has made the sale, so you should feel good about that. And it's a book that I've known of for a long time. It's on that list of books that I know I should read, or something like that. Yeah. And uh, you know, you just uh, you really bring it to life and make a compelling case for why it's great literature. Yeah, I, I mean, interestingly, I, I think I think you would just as knowing your sensibility through the podcast and our limited discussions in person, I think you would love it, but it is a tough read and I'm as interested in what it evokes. And in, in a way you have your own version of stoner, you have your own favorite novel that you return to or piece of nonfiction or even essay or whatever it is, short story that you return to over and over again. And that kind of reveals more and more of your own inner life because the great thing about literature and what makes it distinct from every other art form is it's truly a collaboration and the author sets down, you know, hopefully decides on their words and their sentences and their paragraphs and subplots and characters. And then the reader comes along and serves every other role imaginatively. And, um, the book, good literature, I read Joan Didion's Goodbye to All That every year as a matter of course for teaching my courses, sometimes twice a year. And every single time I read it, there's something new that I realize. And it's not because Joan Didion was sitting there being brilliant and, and you know, putting in all of those particular little choices consciously. That's not it at all. She just hit that space that you're always going for as a writer where the decisions are largely driven by the unconscious and they're brilliant, but they're not brilliant by design. They're just brilliant by her attention being riveted on what she's writing about. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Well, and what about, you know, a book like Stoner that has played such a central role in your reading life and in your writing life and, and maybe in your life, uh, just writ large. And what about this notion of diminishing returns? Because I have books that I, uh, have, you know, that have impacted me greatly and my relationship, my relationship to them over the years has changed as I've gotten older and as I've changed, you know, I go back to the book and it doesn't necessarily resonate. I still have great affection for it, but it doesn't right. have the power that it once did. And yet it seems like Stoner and maybe uh, Didion and certain other books yep. have managed to uh, have some staying power for you and have made like maybe your relationship to them has changed, but it's it's no less potent. Is that fair? Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's rare. And it's also sensibility, but I think you're right that there is a certain kind of book. If I 
went back and reread, I don't know, you know, an early Vonnegut or uh, maybe, um, you know, a separate piece or, you know, another book, maybe, maybe Catcher in the Rye. I don't know if that's fair. But anyway, I know the kind of experience you're talking about where it was profound to you at 20 or at 15, but at 25 or 30 or 40, you go, okay, I can kind of see that that's writing about a particular time in somebody's life and a particular set of insights that are particular to that province. Stoner is this book where, you know, when I was 28 and I first read it, it blew my mind because it was such an idealistic portrait of what it's like to encounter literature and suddenly have your soul awakened and say, my God, there is a deeper reason I'm on this earth. There is a deeper way that I am going to find meaning. And it has to do with language and the transmission of stories and love and attention. And that's fucking it. But, you know, a few late years later, I read it and it's a different book. It's about feuds and the way I was in the midst of engineering a whole set of ridiculous feuds in my graduate school program where I was reviled by the faculty and and, and I think acting out in ways that I only could barely discern through my persistent victimhood drama, right? Uh, and and in the, even in my early publishing career with various agents and editors, I was getting into all of these brawls. And so Stoner becomes a book about conflict and how we defend our rights in the world without defending our honor, without succumbing to that particular nightmare opera. And then it became a book about teaching as I was running around Boston, you know, as an adjunct of professor of bitterness, you know, sort of trying to figure out how do I transmit love and attention to my students? How do I get across how exciting this all is and how much it matters and, and all that kind of evangelical fervor? And usually fail and wind up doing a pretty terrible job at that, but just still keep believing in it. Because that's the thing that redeems stoners. Marriage goes to hell. His academic career goes nowhere. I believe he was a, a negligent and destructive father through his absence. But he has that teaching pursuit that is the meaning that he's the, 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 the really the mission that he has, the calling that kind of redeems him, gives his life meaning and value. And then I got married, dude, right? And then it becomes about the, the beautiful rigor and the sort of brutal ecstatic experience of being married and realizing, oh, this isn't the person who I'm just going to love forever through thick and thin. This is the person to whom I'm going to reveal the most monstrous parts of myself and vice versa. And then we're going to have that those monsters in the room along with maybe kids and financial obligations and family pressures and ghosts. And then, you know, I haven't even gotten to like death or parenthood, which are the last couple of chapters of the book, which, you know, were again, when I read the stoner as a, as a father, I was furious in a way I never had been. And then when I read stoner having my mom die and, and having have, have her die in a way that was very painful in which he didn't esteem her life and, and give herself the love and mercy that she was, that she deserved, that she'd earned, you know, reading stoner was, a brutal experience all over again. It was a very different book. So I feel like it's rare that you find a piece of literature of any sort where you know this isn't just the story of Stoner's life. This is actually the story of my life. But great novels and, and great pieces of writing have that power. That's just what Nabokov means. You know, there's no reading. There's just rereading. Like it is particular to literary. And I'm sure the same thing is true of a wonderful movie or of a painting. But with literature, you have this story that's being told. And because you're having to do so much of the imaginative work and the emotional and psychological work, and because there's this complexity that's just baked into the language and that kind of artistic imaginative collaboration, you are, I believe you are actually reading a different novel every time you have to be because you're such a central part of it and you're constantly changing. 
Well, but and the, but the fact that this book can sustain repeat reads over a lifetime and continue to deliver uh, new insights, just like you were talking about with Didion, that I think is a testament to really uh, well-realized, deeply well-realized art, because I don't think most books can can do that. No, probably not. And that's, but I, I guess I would just want to say sensibility wise, that's kind of up to like, you know, I resonated with Stoner immediately for one reason. And then when I kept going back to it, but I think that's what impels us. Like my wife reads, you know, Little Women and read it every year for a number of years and has reread it several times over the course of our marriage. And for her, that's the book. That's the book that got into the groundwater early, but happened to also be a work of sufficient depth that it's no longer just as it was when she was 15, a book about the wish fantasy of living in a household that's run by a wise, compassionate matriarch who takes care of all the girls. And it's really a, a matriarchal world. That was the wish fantasy she had as a young woman growing up in a family that was totally patriarchal with a very troubled and, and I think damaged and damaging, you know, um, mom, uh, that was the fantasy she had, but now, you know, reading it at 40, she is reading it as a book about how hard women have to work to lead the kind of life they want to in a world that is depriving them of the opportunity to be Joe March wants more than anything to be a writer, to be financially independent. Well, that's the story that resonates with Aaron these days. And it's not that that other book went away. It's just another one took over. And, you know, maybe uh, listeners would benefit from learning a little bit about the history, like the publication history of the book Stoner, because that's always, especially for people who are writerly, it's a very heartening story. (laughs) Yeah. You know, the people who might be laboring in obscurity or toiling on the mid list or, or, you know, who are unpublished. uh, Why don't you talk a little bit about the path that this book has taken to where it is now? Yeah, it's kind of it's totally nuts. It is like the wish fantasy of of publication histories because it what it proves. So here's the history. Stoner was written in 19 in the early 60s and it was published in 1965. This very quiet, restrained story of uh, an academic, you know, with an unhappy sort of private life who never goes anywhere in his professional life, but stays in the university, believes in the university and the, and the mission of literature and teaching. Um, and it follows him from birth to death. The amazing thing about Stoner is that it's sort of the wish fantasy of every author unless you are one of those authors who's both extraordinarily talented and fortunate and you you sell lots of books and your your books reach deeply into people and also have a wide audience because i think maybe i've told you like i think there's certain kinds of artists there's like the artists like dylan and mozart and i don't know you know tony morrison and and uh, jane austen or whatever who reach a mass audience and reach them on a deep level and then there's another kind of artist that's probably more like me where I'm trying to reach an audience on a deep level, but chances are I, I'm, I'm not reaching a lot of people. I'm kind of more niche author. And then there's a third category who are really interested in re- reaching a lot of people, but maybe not quite as deeply. So a writer like James Patterson, maybe, or, um, or, you know, a musician like Toto, <laughs> okay, a band like Toto. That is, they're not trying to make great capital A art, but they are trying to make art that is entertaining to people and um you know uh gets the, gets them thinking and imagining and i don't i'm not big on making value judgments about what kind of art people make but i i admire the most the artists who make really beautiful involving art that also reaches deeply into the inner life 
Stoner was not is certainly in that category of trying to do that, but it was published in 1965, and it's this very restrained story of a quiet academic and his you know sort of inner life and his struggle, a farm kid who finds the university and then finds a lot of trouble as well. And it was not at all in sync with where American literature was at. You know, Saul Bellow was writing this kind of pyrotechnic, virtuosic, culturally expansive sort of stuff. Uh, James Baldwin, Go Tell It on the Mountain, is writing about the national civil rights movement um, that's going on in the United States and, and stuff that's really resonant in that moment, mid-60s. So Stoner disappears almost without a trace, sells a couple thousand copies, goes out of print. But because of its particular kind of effect on, on a particular kind of reader, who's somebody who's a true believer in literature, it keeps getting... You know, it's like the, I describe it as the Velvet Underground of, of novels. You know, it didn't have a lot of fans, but the fans, all of the fans who loved the book were either writers or critics or professors. So they kept spreading the word about it. So it's republished a few years later. And after a lot of sort of critical praise, it's republished. And then it immediately falls out of view again because it's not something that can be commodified and scaled up. It's too intense and, and ex- a reading experience. And then it goes, you know, but again, it's brought back a few years later and a third time it goes out of print. But because it just kept spreading its tendrils and because those tendrils were sort of going so deep into people, they just can't quit it. And people like me, I read probably the second edition, I think, that the University of Arkansas put out. That was the edition that was pressed into my hands like two and a half decades ago. And I, as you know, I wrote about it and and recommended it constantly. And that is what Orwell means when he says an only true critic is time. You know, that only the individual readers, because you invest so much in reading anything, but a novel in this case, there's so much time and energy involved in it and gets so deep into you. Really, the ultimate person who's going to decide whether a book is important or not is individual readers and individual readers spreading the word i think through word of mouth good reviews and and having something be a book that's really hot and people are buying it because they hear about it from two or three different places that's great and that can lead to the sort of popularization of books that end up being really important and and enduring pieces of literature but the central thing that has to happen I believe is that it has to get deep into people's systems and they have to be so affected by it that they hawk people at China, you know, they, they nudge people to read it. And that's what I think happened with Stoner and, and particularly with writers and critics who found it and said, Oh my God, this is a fellow traveler in the, in the great crusade of literature. And so finally the New York review of books found it in 2006, I think put out of the, the fourth and final edition that's still in print. And it also lit fire in Europe and became an, a bestseller in about six different European countries, which is weird if you think about it, because it is not the quintessentially big, loud, demotic American novel. It is a very quiet, almost not un-American, but it just, it's not what people think of when they think of American culture, which is all about performance and personality. So one of the curiosities is like how how Stoner became such a bestseller in Europe. And I don't know the exact reason, but I think it has something to do with the fact that it speaks to an, an idealized version of a very different kind of American personality, one that really 
predominated maybe last century or the century before that where there was a feeling that it was a kind of culture of character that that somebody's equity as a person their meaning and their worth didn't reside in their performance of their personalities their social media feed their accomplishments their kind of marketing campaign it resided in this small private interactions with people who they were very close to that's what mattered was your character and i think stoner's that kind of book that is saying in the end what matters is the way the extent to which you're paying attention in small private moments not the the extent to which you can get people to pay attention to your show well you know i didn't know the i didn't know the publication success that the book had had in europe and i've thought about this in the context of other novels or works of literature that wind up resonating with foreign audiences and it's almost always surprising, uh, especially for literary work. I can see how popular fiction, especially that which has been translated into film that, you know, goes around the globe and does big box office could be something that people in foreign countries would want to snatch up. But for a work like this, which is kind of quiet and unassuming in so many ways, um, you know, it's sort of astonishing that over a million people in Europe have bought this book. And one of the things that occurred to me when I was reading that section of your book is the fact that it presents an America and maybe a vision of the American dream that is at odds with the popular conception. And I, yeah. th I think that foreign readers and European readers, perhaps um, most especially, love that or, or tend, tend to like that because, you know, there's this American exceptionalism that we like to trumpet about. And there's just this popular notion of the American dream. And there's this huge narrative uh, about this place maybe having a, an air of superiority about it. And this kind of book sort of tears the mask off or, or lifts the veil. I think it calls bullshit on it, honestly. I mean, the, the message of Stoner and the reason I think it is a revolutionary book is it's, it's actually anti-American. If you take the American ideal to be, hey, get famous, be a captain of industry, screw lots of people or at least screw them over, uh, grab power and fame and glory, be lawless and lust-riven and, you know, that version of the American dream, which is really about a kind of ruthless capitalist theocracy that's trying to turn people into competitors, Stoner's a loser. Stoner is somebody by external measures who loses at everything. He loses in love. He loses professionally. He loses the loyalty of his family and feels that he betrays them. And, and, and he's born into poverty and does not somehow find security and greater joy. He actually relives the unhappiness of the childhood that he feels he abandoned and betrayed, right? Um, it, 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 it's a social novel in that sense. It says, no, you're, what the, the circumstances you're born into and the class you're born into, you never escape. This isn't like Dickens that says, boy, Pip can overcome if he has enough pluck or David Copperfield or Oliver Twist. This says, no, actually, if you try to leave uh, you know, the, the subsistence farm, this agricultural servitude you were born into, if you leave that behind, you're going to feel guilty about that betrayal for the rest of your life. And you're going to engineer circumstances that wind up punishing you for that guilt. God bless a goddamn novel that makes clear how much people are loyal to the sorrow of their childhood, how much they don't seek happiness or contentment. They seek to feel alive in the ways that are most familiar to them. And that's a deep message. It's universal. And I think people in, in Europe probably are sitting there saying, my God, this is a kind of American that I've never experienced and a kind of American art that I've never experienced. It's the opposite of this garish spectacle of this fame seeking, fame whoring, bigger, faster, louder culture that's being crammed down our throats, right? By the 
giant export factory that is American pop culture. And so I think that's happening. I think in a way, I don't know, I'm speculating, but I think there's something about the way in which Stoner's actually kind of like a medieval monk. That's the life that he chooses very consciously. And that is a tradition that I think is alive in Europe and European letters of the person like an anchorite or something who chooses to go into isolation and lead this life of incredibly devout devotion and a great deal of suffering, but also a great deal of kind of um, spiritual. He's spiritually very awake. He, he bears witness to the most painful moments in his life. And that's something I think that all of that clamor of American culture is intended to try to distract us from. I think that's actually the whole game of capitalism is to keep us on this habit trail, this endless treadmill of anxieties and worries and doubts that make us obedient consumers. If we just can find the right product or the right garish spectacle, we'll be distracted from our sense of doubt and shame and inhibition and all that longing. And I feel like if people are too, this is what I mean about the battle for the inner life. I, I chose that title and I fought very hard for it because I do feel like the inner life as a whole in the United States is under siege. They, you know, corporate forces are trying to get rid of any hauntings of the inner life because if we start to plug into the fact that our our happiness and our contentment and our sense of meaning in life resides in paying attention to our inner life and the people around us, then we're lousy consumers. We no longer believe that the right perfume or beer or brand of tennis shoe is going to bring us spiritual salve. We just call bullshit on the whole thing, and then capitalism screwed because that's all that it's built on is trying to get us to buy stuff to feel better about the shame that the people who make the stuff are trying to inflict on us constantly. Well, yeah, I mean, that's one of the parts of the book that resonated so deeply with me is this notion of the inner life, the notion of literature being uh, one of the last bastions uh, where people can reliably go to to nurture their inner life. Uh, I, I was moved by the part of it where you talk about MFA programs as yeah. hordes of people, mostly young people, who are just trying to live, like lead their lives in a way that honors their inner life. And I know that MFA programs, you know, they get bashed all the time. I feel like the argument between MFA or no MFA is, is pretty tired at this point, but I see real value in that idealistic notion of them. That's certainly how it felt to me. It was like a hideout. Yeah. I considered it a refuge, just a place to go do work and read books and be around people who wanted to think deeply. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of those false like this, one of those false arguments that people get into because they've got an ego stake in it. And the truth is that it's okay to say, hey, uh, I object to, um, to, to art that is a, or, or to attempts at art that are solipsistic and self-involved or that are fo focus grouped rather than sort of radically subjective. I get that, but that's not really an argument about MFA programs versus not. That's about the decisions that particular artists make and whether they allow their insecurity to get the best of the stories they're trying to tell. It doesn't matter where somebody comes from. Nobody really cares about the pedigree of a particular artist it, or people who care about that stuff are again involved in some ego drama that you know they'll eventually work out or won't what matters is the piece of writing and whether people feel moved by it and whether the writer was able to summon their attention and focus it on the struggles of the characters in that story period end of sentence the rest is just nonsense i will say that as i've gotten older i feel more and more like people are going in search of themselves 
that is partly why MFA programs and writing centers and creative writing classes exist because people are have an instinct within themselves that, hey, wait a second, maybe the point of life isn't to try to get people to pay attention to my life. Maybe the point of life is for me to pay attention to my own life. And that's actually what most writing programs are about. People are going in search of themselves. And I find it just kind of sad and dispiriting when people come along for whatever dopey set of reasons and just say, or whatever, people are struggling to feel like they're, I don't know, tough enough to do it without a class, whatever it is. And they sort of say, oh, well, that's, you know, the, the literature has been homogenized by MFA programs or this, that, the, I just see it as like a whole bunch of people who are going in search of themselves. And what could be more important, especially in this moment, because the dark sort of realization I had about the message of stoner is, and you know, it's hard to actually look at your life and stay in the room in the moments that are most brutal. It's hard to watch stoner see his mother weep for the first time and know that he is the author of those tears and, and that his abandonment of her has caught, brought her to tears in a way that he's never seen her. Like that's a tough room to have to stay in. And for people who are writing, whether they get there or not, they're trying to stay in the room. And what happens when you don't, I mean, this is the really devious thing that makes to me stoner as a novel, a political book and a moral book anyway, is we're in a moment where we've now reached a point where people are putting their inner life on display and they're putting it out there on social media and on and online. And they're saying, here's what I like and what I don't like. And here are the experiences that trouble me and the emotional dynamics. They're putting it all out there, which sounds great, except that basically that when you put it on display for the whole world, a bunch of algorithmists immediately grab that inner life and say, how can we sell this person stuff? And a bunch of other algorithmists, at least in the last election, grabbed a hold of the, the inner life that people were putting on display online and said, actually, how can we poke at these people's primal negative emotions to get them to make self-destructive political decisions, basically? And it's like if if once a culture starts to turn away from individual members of a culture, turn away from themselves, they can be turned against each other. The only ballast against that is for people, I think, to do the kind of reckoning that literature does, reading does, any kind of engagement with the arts do, does, therapy does, all of those processes that are meant to, to force people to slow down and, and figure out what's really upsetting them, or at least grapple with the bewilderment of what's upsetting them. So, you know, in, in my own way, I think of Stoner as revolutionary because it's saying the happy ending isn't that somebody gets famous. In fact, the first paragraph of Stoner announces this guy's a nobody. If you're using the math of the obituary, this guy's a nobody. But the reason that it has kind of, to me, one of the most unexpected and beautiful happy endings in all of literature is because he sees that voice that judges him externally and ultimately sloughs it off and says, you know what? He was thinking about failure as if it mattered at the end of the book. I think it's one of the most hopeful sentences in the English language, as if it mattered. It's unworthy and mean for him to think about the success or failure of his life. What matters is that he knew who he was. He, he was there in the big moments. And that's what m makes him able to face death I think, bravely and, and at peace with himself. And how many of us can say that, Brad? I mean, I think about that all the time. Like, when I get there, will I be able to say that? Will I be able to forgive myself? 
whatever I didn't achieve and say, I tried to lead a life of deep meaning. I tried to connect. I tried to love as hard as I could in the brief span I had on earth. I know that sounds kind of big and lofty, but that's kind of what we're up to. That's what your podcast is up to. It's not just that you read. It's that you want to have these conversations with people that reach deep into the inner life. And, you know, it's not that nobody's doing that. It's that it's way at the edge of the culture. Well, you know, the word that you said a bit earlier that sticks with me and that was evoked by your book and about and by the section uh, of of uh, of the book that deals with stoner and the inner life and MFA programs and, uh, you know, the cultural and political moment that we're in right now is reckoning. And yep. I just feel and I, I'm sure you do, too, that we are headed for some kind of moment of reckoning. We have to. I, I cannot imagine how we are going to survive if we do not, as a country and as a species, have some kind of large moment of reckoning where we do look inward and grapple with our suffering. And I think that the impulse is to turn away from it. But the reality is that the way through is through. And right. I just, uh, I don't know what, what, what that's going to look like or if it's going to happen or how it's going to happen, but something has to give. Like, do you agree? Yeah. Of course. And I think that that reckoning is is happening i mean i think there's a price that is being exacted on us knowing that the the sort of regime that, that we have somehow consented all of us are complicit in creating it um is you know ripping families apart families who are most in need of mercy and 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 basic christian love right we are ripping them apart uh, those people are are, are are suffering before our eyes uh, in ways that are unimaginable to Americans because we live cosseted in this ridiculous, absurd, and ultimately lucky little pocket of privilege. Um, that reckoning is happening all across the globe with mass migration that is born of the change in our climate that we know scientifically we are responsible for and that is going to accelerate and get worse and worse. I don't want to, you know, you, I don't need to trace out this sort of the apocalyptic future, but we know that there's a reckoning. There's a reckoning for women who want control of their own bodies and their own decisions, right? And that reckoning, there was a price to be paid when, you know, our, our, our political leadership went outside of accepted norms and rules and morality to try to essentially sort of cheat their way into getting a judiciary um, that would continue to put under serious threat women's ability to control their bodies. And we shouldn't be shocked that that's now happening. Um, we're all complicit in it. And for me, the question, there's sort of two questions. One is that big macro question of like, we're going to pay for this, right? Like Joan Didion says in, in Goodbye to All That, you know, it, it was an era where I thought nothing mattered, nothing counted. Every bad decision would, would be, you know, uh, I would never have to reckon with. And then that essay is very much about that word. It's about reckoning and realizing, oh, you pay for all of it in the end. And I think there's that macro question of our monstrous negligence, our completely unchristian, almost inquisitorial um, uh, arrogance uh, and 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 worshiping of cruelty and deceit and the most fraudulent kind of power which is wounded masculine aggressive power that's essentially abusive in its in its execution and its conception and like i believe we're going to pay for all of these terrible decisions in the short term and the long term and our children and our children's children but there's also the short-term version of that which is 
everybody who's a citizen of good faith has to recognize, even if it's just emotional and it's not circumstantial yet, we have got to wake up and start to recognize that the capitalist theocracy is going to lead us off the edge of a cliff and it is actually marching us toward that cliff. And, you know, we have got to sort of stop. And I think for me, Stoner is a sort of book that keeps echoing louder because it is saying, hold on, you're at a fundamental category error here. You have to stop getting, you have to convince yourself that the story, I people must pay attention to my life. I, I need literature. I need to be a writer so that I will be known by the world is utterly wrong. It's 100%, 180 degrees off. You, you read and you write to know yourself, not to be known by the world. And if as a byproduct of that, people are interested and you connect with readers, well, then great and wonderful but great and wonderful for your ego, not for your soul. And that's kind of, in a way, I guess, the message I was trying to deliver myself, because you and I know, because we've talked enough, that I fundamentally see myself in many ways as having failed in many of the ambitions that I have. And even though I continue to write little books, and I'm really happy that they move out into the world, in other ways, I feel I failed. And you know, that's not going to go away. I'm not going to get rid of that feeling. And I don't even know that I will muster whatever it is I think I might have inside me to write the great American novel. I probably won't. What I'll have is the small private set of interactions that I have hour to hour, day to day with students, with my wife, with my children, with my with my dad, uh, with my siblings and, and the people who are close to me who I'm trying to love effectively in the brief time that I have. That's it, period. Beyond that, all the rest of it is, it's not that it doesn't matter, it's that it's, uh, um, to me, much more about what your ego needs and not really what your heart needs. So let's talk about John Williams, um, because I feel like the story uh, of his life and his professional life in particular is another one that can be heartening for people. We touched on this a little bit earlier about the trajectory of Stoner and its publication success. But yeah. what we haven't heard about is the fact that he wrote two novels that didn't connect, I believe, right? Two preceding Stoner. Yeah. Yeah. And yep. so, you know, he was a, one of these people who sort of, uh, you know, it was kind of feels like tortoise in the hare. He kept plotting. He kept learning from the mistakes of his earlier books. And he had a certain sense of confidence, despite the fact that these books didn't land in the way that one might traditionally hope their books would land. Oh, yeah. I mean... What's amazing is that Williams wrote one novel that was like an apprentice novel. It's important to recognize he grew up poor. He grew up with with his biological dad disappeared, and he was raised by a stepfather. Um, he had, he lived for a time on a farm with a family, so he understood. And I think, in a sense, in Stoner, created a version of himself, a kind of perfect martyr version of himself, as I look at it, sort of an idealized version of who he was, not who he really was, which is maybe what we're all up to all the time. We're kind of editing ourselves into eloquence and nobility when when the real version of us. My kids say this all the time. It's like, well, what? If, you know, I was talking with them just a few minutes ago before I hopped on the phone with you, and and I, and I was saying, um, you know, or, or somehow my writing came up, or or it wasn't even that; it was maybe a, my teaching or something. And uh, I just said, you know, well, guys, you know, if you ever really told the truth of how I behave, like how awful I am as a father, and how impatient and petty and and easily wounded and all that stuff, like it would be over whatever public reputation I have, which is, you know, minuscule anyway, would be completely blown out of the water. And they were like, yeah, that's true. If we told people who you really were, 
they would be pretty disappointed versus <laughs> the idealistic version you can present as a teacher or something. And at any rate, Stoner, you know, Williams himself was a guy who maybe take that jag out. I don't know where that popped in, but it was, I was thinking about it versus cause, cause John Williams has some things in common with, with Stoner as a character, but as an author, he really, um, he, he was super ambitious. He wanted to be known. He published an apprentice novel, nothing but the night that is really hard to understand. It's clear he's a good writer, but it's, it's like he wrote it with his dick. It's awful. It makes all the, ca- all the category errors that young writers, it jumps into scene, no exposition, no narrator. You just, you know, he's purely trying to just flog the language because he, he doesn't know the story he wants to tell. And he wrote a very good, it was published, but, but he was embarrassed by it. It was published by a small press. And within a couple of years, he was pretty ashamed that he'd made the decision to put it out. But he was also ambitious enough that he wanted a book in the world. Then he wrote this Western, Butcher's Crossing, that's really beautifully written, but is mostly sort of character-driven and, and situation-driven. I shouldn't say character-driven. It's kind of driven by plot. And the characters themselves remain kind of, especially the main character, kind of a cipher. And it went nowhere. It received one review in the New York Times that said it was terrible and slow as molasses and whatever. And he was humiliated by that. He, he couldn't publish much of his poetry. He fancied himself a poet. He got into a big feud with a, a more popular poet and critic when he put out this anthology and was accused of plagiarism. His career was kind of in, in really not in great shape when he started writing Stoner. But what's miraculous to me is he still believed in himself. And he still was sort of the kind of guy who when a when a book would come out, he would go to the faculty lounge at the University Endeavor and kind of hang out and expect that other faculty member would would kind of come by and say, oh, wow, you know, we read your book or we read the review of your book. He was an egotist. And it's always heartening when somebody like me, who's also an egotist, is like, oh, you can be effective and also be a narcissistic shithead. That's great to hear, you know. <laughs> um, but w- what was fascinating is he just kept learning from his mistakes. And I think he sort of hit the sweet spot with Stoner and was able to realize, like, actually, I want to write about what the best part of me, which is the part of me that's a teacher, and that, you know, Williams himself was a guy who put his himself first in his career, like all the great male narcissists, right, you know, and Updike and, and, and Saul Bellow and, and Philip Roth and whoever, the and all the rest of them. He was somebody who was continually having affairs. He was married four times. He had kids, but didn't pay much attention to them. All the focus was on his work and women were sort of the support staff. But in Stoner, he created an idealized version, I think, of himself who had all the good stuff, the devotion to literature, being a great teacher, the university and literature as a redemptive force, and none of the bad stuff. He is, in fact, a victim in every scenario. He's victimized by his damaged wife, He's victimized in these academic feuds he gets into, so his his advancement is blocked, but it's because somebody's sort of, you know, takes personal issue with him. And in every moment he remains incredibly stoic and forbearing. He isn't a head case, he isn't an egotist, he's just the opposite of that. So it's like Williams sort of created this idealized version of himself. And the next book he wrote after Stoner because it disappeared from view very quickly, did quite do quite well. It's called Augustus. It's an epistolary novel about the Roman emperor. And it did well. It like won half of the National Book Award, um, along with John Barth, who won the other half for a more experimental piece of work. And so, you know, he was a writer of some regard. And he certainly made a living at it. He, he you know, was was well regarded, but not a big deal writer. 
And it's sort of like, well, kind of who cares? Again, in your lifetime, if you're thinking about how is my work going to be seen in the next 10 weeks, you know, or even 10 months, and maybe even 10 years, you're kind of keeping score using the wrong math. It's more like how much of what was it, what's inside of myself did I get onto the page, whether it's through fictional characters and creations or my own story or some kind of reportage or some combination of all of them. That's what matters. And I think with Stoner, he got the most of himself, the most insight, the most beauty with language, the most narrative skill. And the, the way the book is narrated is astonishing. And it's kind of like a remarkably effective, not rebuke, but example of what a strong, powerful narrator should do in a, in a piece of storytelling. Uh, flies in the face of Every show don't tell dogma that that is crammed down our throats as, as creative writing teachers and students. So I think he kind of hit the the spot. And maybe it's important that he wasn't successful, if you know what I mean. Maybe it's important that he um, had to believe in the work, even though his agent was saying, "Gee, nobody's going to be interested in this." And she was right, by the way. Nobody was. It went out of print. But he he stuck to his guns. He said, "Actually, you'll see that if you look." Underneath this quote unquote unrelieved style of narration, that's the agent used that phrase, you'll see that I'm actually trying to do something that's quite revolutionary. And goddamn if he wasn't. And part of the reason we're still talking about this book is because it has, to my mind, the, the most audacious opening in, in practically all of literature. This guy was a nobody and stopped paying attention to external crap. What matters is his inner life. And then I'm going to take you to every single moment where his inner life is in upheaval. And I'm going to stay in the room when he's overrun by feeling. I'm not going to let him or the reader get away. And that is kind of revolutionary. I had, I've never seen something. I've never seen another book that does that so purely from basically from childhood to death. Well, you know, it's funny because we've now talked for this podcast, I believe, four times. And I was thinking about you when uh, I was getting ready for the interview and uh, we talked for Against Football, and then we talked for Bad Stories, mm -hmm. and now we're talking for this book about Stoner. And to me, they feel very connected. They, it feels like some larger project that you're working on. Uh, I was almost thinking to myself, like, I could see at some point one day, like, all of these books being collected in a single volume, even though they, at surface level, seem like they're totally disparate. Like, they, it feels like you're working through... Uh, a, a, like a large pattern of themes and using as framework, uh, for example, this novel or football, mm -hmm. uh, or the Trump era and the, you know, the political machinations in Washington, particularly on the right. But yeah. uh, why am I feeling that sense of connectivity? Is it just in my head? Is it something that you conceived of as you've write, as you've been writing them? Or is it something that in retrospect you can see? Oh yeah, no, you're one of the people who points it out. And of course, I, I mean, you know, of course, it's all connected. And of course, I'm circling the same preoccupations over and over again. You, you, you know what I mean? Not like, of course, it's obvious, but it's obvious once it's pointed out. And, you know, I'm, I'm asking kind of basic questions about and, and, you know, against football, you can say is the struggle for the inner life as a football fan. Right. Or bad stories could be the struggle for the inner life uh, in our political moment. Or, you know, it's all about, I think, anyway, trying to figure out at a fundamental level, how do we find meaning in our lives? And what are the various, the, for me, the easiest thing to do? And actually, I would, I would include Candy Freak in this as well. It's like the inner life of, of childhood pleasure or of gustatory pleasure or of candy itself. 
like I think what happens is I'm I have my lens and my lens is shaped by uh, kind of my experiences being the kid of two psychoanalysts, be, having done a lot of therapy and thought a lot about my unhappiness and my anxiety and how to forgive myself for feeling like a failure all the time and how to love effectively uh, and how I sort of engineer feuds but also desperately want to love and connect with people and not be angry anymore and that stuff keeps coming up over and over and over again. It's in not that you asked. It's the same set of concerns. And I'm just finding, I guess, a different pretext for them or a different substrate. And I think that's true of most writers in a way. Like, we're just circling the same set of preoccupations. You can read any of Jane Austen's books. And she's saying, how do we find our way to love amid our delusions about ourselves? If we can't see ourselves clearly, how do we how are we made to see ourselves clearly as painful and uncomfortable as that is because otherwise we cannot find a suitable love and and we won't find an enduring and suitable love that was her subject that's what she wrote about over and over again you know to to my way of thinking updike in his work was trying to figure out and work out uh, you know, how do we how, how does the the self-involved solipsistic male uh, survive his own despicable self-involved behavior and still lead a life of meaning, no, you know, knowing that he's probably betraying most of the people around him, especially the women in his life. Um, you know, I feel like if you really drill down, most artists are creating in with their work uh, s- sort of a, a pretty it's their worldview that's on display. Maybe the settings change, maybe the characters and the trajectory of those characters, but it's the same lens that they're applying to everything. And mine is desperately concerned with like, how do I love and pay attention in the brief time that I have? And I don't think I ever would have thought this or said it, but I think Stoner gave me a very clear window onto it because William Stoner himself is somebody who nobody would pay attention to if this novel wasn't written we can agree with that like he's i remember doing a a book club about the book and this guy stood up at one point there'd been some alcohol consumed and he said i hate this book this guy's a loser he can't stand up for himself he's a loser why should i read about this loser he was furious brad and i was like yes that's exactly right he is a loser he doesn't stand up for himself He, he in crucial moments fails and the reason you're pissed off at him is the same reason I'm pissed off at him, because we're losers too. And the predominant experience in our lives is being losers or feeling like losers or afraid that we're losers. And how do we get over that? How do we turn ourselves from feeling like losers all the time to recognizing, no, let's esteem who we were and what we did or tried to do in life. And that's like it. At the center of everything I do is that question. And think about who we're ruled by. You know, at least our attention is ruled by somebody who is deep down just the most transparently unhappy, biggest loser and a, z- and a zillion different levels. And is just trying to do everything he can, every sadistic, you know, trick that he can pull out of his bag of wounded ego to try to dispel those feelings. Think about how disastrous it is when a culture is ruled by that by the abnegation of that basic question of how do I feel okay about who I am and what I've done in this brief time I have. So yeah, that's guilty as charged. That's what I'm writing about over and over. 
And did you say that to the guy in the book club when he when he said this guy's a loser? Did you say, "Well, we're both losers"? <laughs> I didn't. I did not. That is not. I, I did not. Although it would have been an interesting moment. I was going to no, say. <laughs> but you know what? You know what happened? Actually, another guy stood up who hadn't had as much to drink and wasn't as. And he said, "Actually," and he said more quietly, "He said I, I feel just the opposite. I feel that everything that Stoner is and was, as I read the book, I felt that that was me." And a bunch of people nodded their heads. And I think they were both saying that, right? Why does this guy have this outsized, furious reaction? If stoner didn't matter to people, if it didn't corkscrew into their inner life in such a profound way, nobody's you know, getting hammered at a book club and saying, this guy's a loser. How dare you make me read about him? <laughs> the, the, the presence of that kind of deep feeling is evidence that obviously this guy felt implicated. And honestly, that to me is is what you're looking for when you go to any kind of art, but literary art in particular. I don't, I'm not interested in morally indicting art. I'm interested in art that morally and even emotionally and psychologically implicates me, where when I read it, I go, God damn it, that's me. Right, right. And I feel like with this book, uh, you know, having read you over the years, this feels the like the most explicitly personal thing that I've read from you. There's a lot yeah. of really bracing honesty in it. And it also feels um, concerned with mortality. And I know this because I know the story of Stoner and I know that you lost your mother. And I feel like an asshole now for not reading those last 20 pages. Um, I tried, you know, I was racing before the interview. But um, are those two things connected? Like, it seems to me like they they might be like it or maybe the three things the 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 interest in writing about stoner the interest in writing personally because the book often turns to relationships in your life feuds you've had your marriage right. uh you know you you go right into these things um with great clarity and like a bracing honesty and i'm just i'm just wondering uh you know how those things might be related and how it affected the writing <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I had to work my way up to I mean, there's so much for me to write about in the book. You know, we didn't even covered like the fact that it's this powerful anti-war book, um, you know, the fact that it's about kind of our secret masochism. You know, there's all these different chapters that allowed me to explore different elements of the book and then also kind of how they reflected and played out in my life. But certainly I had to work my way up to the last couple of chapters. And I thought of you actually, Brad, you know, in writing about parenting and that that cha chapter lessons in helplessness, because that's very much like we're just terribly vulnerable to our children and, and want so desperately for them to be happy and to have happy, meaningful lives. And we want to be able to provide them that. And we know ultimately that we can't, you know, we can only do so much. And even the desperation to keep them happy is probably going to make them unhappy, if you see what I mean. We can't be perfect because the world isn't perfect. So I certainly had to work my way up to writing about that stuff. And then the death of my mom, towards whom I felt a, a deep love, but also an incredible amount of guilt that plays out in, in a lot of my fiction and nonfiction. Um, you know, that was something I feel that I had to work my way up to being able to write about. And so, you know, I have my wife, Erin, who's also, you know, she's a novelist. I have her read everything and I, you know, kind of gave her the book and she was basically like, you know, again, I was, I was doing okay until, until the very last couple of chapters because she, she lived through my mother's death and felt a great admiration for my mom, um, really 
I just love my mom so deeply. And so she had a, she also was like, geez, I, I mean, I've written a lot about the sexual idiocy of my twenties or my, you know, public morality or, you know, kind of the punchline part of my life. I don't have a problem doing, dealing with that, writing about, um, my rivalry with siblings and sibling like figures. There's lots of stuff that I will get into that's more personal than, than lots of authors will. But, um, kind of the deepest experiences with my kids and, and with my mom and especially around her death. Um, yeah, that's not a place that I had gone before not because i hadn't thought to it's just i had to work my way up to it um and i do feel like i didn't consciously make that decision i just knew that every time i read stoner the last you know the last time it was clearly about death and it was about my mom and that line about he was thinking about failure as if it mattered like that's the line that i wanted my mom to be able to deliver to herself i wanted to give her stoner's death and i knew i couldn't and it was horrible to see such a brilliant brave accomplished woman just return to the doubt and anxiety that that i had seen her live out in her life and that i knew that i was in some ways complicit in and that i couldn't save her from uh so like i knew that that was going to have to get written about but i also knew that i had to kind of work my way up to it and the same thing is true of thinking about how frightening and upsetting it is just to witness your children and how how much you can't quite save them or protect them that's just beyond you can't do it i knew it was going to take me a little while before i could write about that but i also knew because i got so angry at stoner the second to last time i read it and i realized how negligent he'd been toward his daughter and how he missed the blessed opportunity to be present even if he didn't convince his wife to to you know, allow him to be more involved in the raising of their daughter. Even if he failed, he had an obligation to try. Like our job is not to succeed as parents. It's to show up and to try, period. And uh, he doesn't, I feel. And so if you see what I mean, I um, it took me a while to write about that stuff because it is not just it's more private or personal. It's also harder to do it in a way that feels appropriate. And that if you're going to write about that stuff, I feel like you have an obligation to get as much meaning out of it as you can so that it's not just solipsistic. It's not just wah, wah, I had a you know parent who died. There's people who I've gotten lucky on a zillion different levels. And, you know, uh, I'm, I'm very careful about sort of saying, well, I, I do want to write about some of my personal experience, but I want to confuse it. With, with the kind of trauma that people are living with, like day-to-day, moment-to-moment. I just want to get at the part of my experience that maybe other parents or other children who face the death of their parents have gone through as well. It's kind of wrenching cycle of, of, of learning certain things that you knew all along but wished not to know. Well, and what about, you said earlier that you had some guilt around your mom and, um, I, I know that you kind of spoke to a guilt of not being able to give her the the moment of epiphany that Stoner had towards the end of his life or the death that he experienced. But yeah. is there something else that you're referring to? And I say this having not gotten to that section of the book. Yeah, I mean, I think you'll see that like my mom, like a lot of women um, in the world, uh, was the chief recipient of sort of masculine bullying and the chief healer of masculine doubt. I think that's every woman's experience, or at least it was certainly was powerfully the experience of my mom or most women. And I think 
that I and my brothers and my dad treated her terribly. Uh, and I don't think we, I think we were in pain. And so we passed that off to her. And I think she was a very loving person, but also absorbed some of that punishment and cruelty and didn't stand up for herself in various ways that she should have, uh, or that she, she, I wish that she had, I shouldn't say she should have, I wish that she had, I wish, but on the other hand, I feel we were the ones who were taking advantage of that in the way that men just as a function of patriarchal culture do. Uh, It's not like we consciously are trying to be jerks. We're just have created a system in which we're allowed to be jerks, in which we're allowed to bully, in which we're allowed to put our needs and our thoughts and our wishes before women. It's just the air we breathe. And, and this does have something to do with my more recent readings of Stoner, because there's a whole chapter, you know, Edith Stoner is a person, not a problem, like that was my radical reading of how misogynistic Stoner is, which it is. You know, the problem is that Stoner never can see his wife who does not want to be married to him, who does not want to be married to anybody who's been disfigured by her own parents. And, you know, my mom was a much more powerful, loving, compassionate, effective person, but she still was treated terribly. And there's uh, a a few episodes in the, at the end of the book, I think that speak directly to how much she did at the end of her life, recognize that. But rather than saying, I wish you had treated me better. I deserve better. And I'm furious about it. And I just, I deserve some apologies. She, I think experienced illness as many ambitious people do as a kind of narcissistic insult. And instead she was the problem and she should have been stronger. And how dare she, she die. She wanted to take care of everybody in her life with the exception of her. And, you know, um, that is, that is the way that, that, that played out. And, you know, in, in this book and in my short stories, especially God bless America is filled with stories about moms of, of kind of basically jerk sons and husbands and all of the suffering that women absorb silently and persistently. Um, I didn't realize that a few few readers were kind enough to say, what's with all the like unhappy moms in this book? And I was like, of course, that was me trying to write about the experience of of my family and my feelings of regret for my mom. Well, in this book, I'm just more overt about it because I was in all those rooms and I saw the experiences that I did and I knew that I was a part of them. And even though I, in my own head, I was trying to kind of, I don't know what, cheer my mother up or somehow rescue her from her doubt and anxiety. I was also one of the men in her life who was taking advantage of the privilege that I was granted by the dumb luck of being born in the gender that I was born into. So, um, yeah. And and I, I feel like all of that stuff emerges. I knew I was going to have to write those chapters. I just knew that I was going to have to write them at the end of the book because otherwise I would, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to do it. So uh, before I let you go, I want to talk about your super, like what I consider to be your super fluidity, like both in talking, you're an unusually gifted thinker and talker. You're able to kind of get it all out in uh, paragraphs. And it's also apparent on the page, you know, you can really work through an argument or a problem um, with unusual grace. And I just want to like ask you about the nuts and bolts of how you do it. Like, how do you build an individual essay or chapter in this book about Stoner or in, or in other books, um, you know, your last two books in particular, where you're making a case, uh, you know, it's like an analysis and an argument 
and personal reflection all rolled into one. Like, are you outlining? Are you note taking and doing right. deep reading and then getting to the work? Are you, are you preconceiving how these things are supposed to look? And then once you have it locked in your head, you can sit down and bang it out. I just want to get into like the Steve Allman process. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is going to be very disappointing. The, the, the process is much more by feel and with all of the last three books, which are these nonfiction books that you write, or maybe like in a weird kind of way, a sort of disparate trilogy, all of them were subjects that I had been preoccupied by the moral corruption of football, uh, you know, the, the sort of the, the, the nature of American delusion and the stories we the false stories we tell ourselves or consent to and, and with this book in some ways the, the battle for the inner life through the prism of this one novel all of those were things that I'd been thinking about for decades and you know trying to understand consciously and unconsciously and with Stoner honestly what I needed to write the book was a couple of weeks just outside the crucible of a, a house with a, a, a beautiful ec ecstatic amazing creative and rambunctious and loud and needy set of children um you know 12 10 and 5 i just needed in my wife and our relationship which is you know is beautiful but it's work and i just needed space a couple of weeks or at least 10 day stretch anyway in a quiet place to then say, okay, I need to read over Stoner. I need to flag all the quotes that are that are still echoing in my head and that feel the most important to me. And now I need to think about thematically what ways do I want to write about, and what ways does this book matter to me? And the, a lot of it was really by feel, and a lot of it was I'd done a lot of pre-thinking and even some pre-writing. I'd written a couple of essays about Stoner. So I had started years ago already thinking about why the book mattered to me. In a way, Brad, honestly, the last three books have been extensions of work that I was already doing. I was already thinking in those paragraphs about uh, you know, football or American political discourse and history. And in this case, Stoner, I'd written pieces for the New York Times magazine or the Rumpus or any, you know, essays for all kinds of literary magazines that were in one way or another. And I'd done book clubs and deep readings of Stoner. I took, did this thing out at Lighthouse in Denver where we did eight hours talking about stoner and i literally went through the novel and said what is the precise mechanism of its enthrallment how does it suck me in every single time i get up i'm walking around my office i'm, I'm frisking the shelves for inspiration and somehow i land on stoner and i start reading it and like an hour later i'm 50 pages in and i'm like shit i'm gonna have to reread this again there's no way i can put it down like how does he do that so I had thought so much about this. It's not that the book wrote itself. I had to goddamn write it. But I had a I had a big head start in terms of really knowing this is a book I'm obsessed with. This is a book that I'm in discussion with myself and have been. Sometimes that stuff getting out into the public, but certainly within my own mind, I'd been thinking about it for such a long time. And this is true of, this is why I say our favorite novels are not, we shouldn't just think of them as novels, they're manuals for living. They are the manner by which we come to know ourselves. And I was doing that work on Dear Sugars, the podcast, 
you know, people would come to us with these deep struggles. And Cheryl Strayed, just because she's amazing and has led such a remarkable life, would always have a personal story. And I didn't have a personal story for the, for the most part. But what I had was the memory of some piece of literature that had provided me some kind of clarity in, in a situation that the letter writer might have been grappling with. And oftentimes that was from Stoner. Um, you know, I quoted that two or three times on Dear Sugar. So even in that work that I was doing, I was trying to say, you know what, literature isn't just something that we read to entertain ourselves. It's like how we understand who we are and what we're supposed to do in life. And so I had a big head start. And it was pretty, you know, I definitely did a close reading of it. I marked it up. I wrote out all the quotes that seemed resonant to me, and they began to kind of organize themselves. Yep, there's an anti-war section. Yep, this is a novel about class. Yep, the marriage, this says something profound about marriage and how we oftentimes uh, kind of head into it a bit like zombies. Uh, we have to be sort of blind to to uh, how profound the promise is that we're making uh, to somebody. And yes, this is also about misogyny and patriarchal culture. If I'm going to write about the marriage as something that's a rigor for Stoner, I should also recognize that he's blind in the same ways that I've been blind. And every time... It, it, Every time it was it was quite obvious to me. Yep, this, and I also need to write about this. Yeah, and I, I have to write about this. And then I just, you know what I mean? I sort of said, okay. Before I knew it, I sort of recognized, okay, I've got twelve chapters here, and that feels like I've said most of what I have to say about Stoner until the next goddamn time I read it. <laughs> well, but I mean, that's got to be a good feeling. I feel like when you start to have a sense of framework. Like, you know, you know that you have like a map, you know, at, at yeah. that point, it's gotta, it's gotta be exciting. And I think there are three things that come to mind, um, in hearing you talk about the process, especially with these last few books. And one of them is just the, the doing the work part that there's no shortcuts, doing the reading, doing the teaching, doing the talking, being in conversation internally with, uh, these books or themes or, um, entities that preoccupy you. And then, um, there's also this sense of incubation, you know, and, yeah. and patience and being willing to let these things brew. And I think sometimes we can be in such a hurry to get to the page and to get to publication that we rush ourselves. So right. I guess the third thing is connected to that, which is having a finely attuned sense of time and having a sense of timing, you know, of when it's right and when it's ready to be said. And, uh, I guess that's just intuition. You know, at some point you just, you, you know, you're a working writer, you've got to find your next project and, um, whatever is speaking to you most loudly at the moment, I would imagine is the thing that you eventually, uh, get down to business working on. Yeah. But you, what's interesting, Brad, is that I, I don't have the experience of saying, yes, this is the next thing. Oftentimes it's somebody just suggesting it to me. And in a weird way, even though that seems quote unquote random or it seems like somebody else is in control of it. I think probably I'm the kind of writer who works better getting an assignment, if you know what I mean, uh, or giving myself an assignment that feels like kind of a casual knockoff book. Because whenever I've tried to assume the mantle of, I will now write the great American novel or, you know, I'll, I'll get to work on fiction again. Uh, I, I am doing that. I'm writing stories I really like. I hope to put out a collection sometime before my death, you know, and, and maybe even get back to work on a novel. But in the meantime, I feel like if I 
can find something I'm genuinely interested in and I don't feel there's too much pressure, what happens is much more a process of disinhibition, which is frankly what I'm trying to induce as a teacher. It's not that I want people to find the ultimate story they have to tell. I just want them to get rid of through writing. I want them to try to process and engage in productive bewilderment around the stuff they cannot get rid of by other means. I cannot get rid of stoner. I can't quit it. And so that tells me, okay, you're going to have to write about it. Same thing about my life as a fan and my love of football and hate, hatred of myself for it. And dot, dot, dot. You can trace that through everything I've written. It's just what I cannot get rid of by other means. And that means that like when somebody suggests something, I kind of know like, yeah, I think I have a lot to say about that. And, and if I don't treat it too importantly, I don't put too much pressure on myself. I think I can make a nice little book out of it. And I really do think in those terms, you know, I've been writing books that are shorter and that's partly as a, as a consequence of, of just being in the place I am as a, as a parent and, and as a partner, like having this busy life. But it's also that there's a lesson there, which is sometimes you need to take on something that doesn't feel so high pressure and then your ego won't get too involved and then you'll make better, more organic decisions and be able to tell the truth about the stuff that matters to you most deeply without mucking it up with your insecurity. So that's that's my process is like try to write about the stuff that matters to you most deeply and try not to muck it up with your insecurity. Which makes sense. And what I'm now thinking, and uh, you're going to have to forgive me for like a moment of armchair psych here, but you're the child of two psychoanalysts. And mm -hmm. I feel like the mode that you've been working in on these last three books where you have sort of this like monolithic entity that you are responding to and teasing apart and trying to understand and vis-a-vis mm -hmm. -vis trying to understand it, trying to understand yourself and um, the wider culture. Like it seems like it seems like it makes sense to me that it's almost like you're psychoanalyzing. You have a certain gift for it that you have found a way to channel into literature as opposed to like a therapeutic model. Uh, if yeah. it, does that make sense? I mean, it, it does. I mean, it's what I'm trying to do as, as a teacher as well. Some editor years ago said, oh, I really like your style of psychoanalytic romanticism. And I'm sure I somehow managed to get insulted by that. But I think actually that was like a, a sweet assessment. Like, yeah, I, I am really concerned with the inner life. I come by that naturally. That's what my parents were concerned with. And, you know, I've been in therapy enough to recognize, like, we're all trying in our own way to understand our own story and figure out how to become a more reliable narrator and to, you know, be present and uh, kind of bear witness to the most difficult and confusing parts of it so we don't keep making the same mistakes over and over again. If we do, we're, more, we're quicker to forgive ourselves. Screw that business of like getting over our mistakes. We never stop making them. The question is, do we find our way to forgiveness more quickly? Does that voice of ruthless judgment that, that besets Stoner at the end, do we ever have that countervailing voice that says he was thinking about failure as if it mattered? And that's the zone that I'm trying to find. And maybe in a weird way, like these little books are my effort to just write that sentence in my own life. Well, I think that's a great place to stop. Um, it's always so nice to talk to you and to read you. Congratulations on this book. Um, I'm going to try to think of an assignment for you just so I can selfishly get you to write a book like almost <laughs> exclusively for me. But uh, 
I, I will do that. Uh, here, here's what a kind of sick, crazy Brad Listy fan I'm. I'll probably end up doing that, and then it means we'll pr- probably get passionally involved, and then have a messy divorce. Like the whole thing is going to be horrible, and eventually we'll be on the E Channel, and I'm ready for that. Well, uh, I guess that leaves our listeners in in a state of suspense, which is a good place to leave them. So yes. it's great talking to you, man. Oh, I have an assignment for you too, and I mean this because I, I, as much as I love talking with you, I also like it's. A, I respect your opinion a lot, and I and I I want to keep writing books that you like. So I want to hear either on the podcast or just privately through our little sexting back channel uh, what what you thought of the la- at the end of the book because it's you know I, I hate it I hate that I rushed you to the interview or that, that you didn't get a chance to read it and I'm genuinely curious what what you'll make of uh, uh, of those last 20 pages so let me know somehow I definitely will I'm gonna read them soon I'm like I'm eager to get to it so I'll let you know as soon as I do like I say they're calling it the beach read of never actually <laughs> ever <laughs> all right Steve take care I right, see you, man Okay, there you have it, folks. That is Steve Almond, and his new book is called William Stoner and the Battle for the Inner Life. It is available from IG Publishing. You can find Steve online at uh, stevealmondjoy.org. He's on Twitter. His handle there is at stevealmondjoy. He's got a Facebook presence. The book, once again, is called William Stoner and the Battle for the Inner Life. Go get your copy right now. Do yourself a favor. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music, as always. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you would like to support this program, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Throw a few bucks in the hat. If you like this content, you can also rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps. If you haven't done that yet, consider doing it. If it's not too much trouble, it helps on uh, like the ratings and the helps with the algorithms. I forgot to mention Steve Almond uh, is also the the co-host of the uh, Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed. That is available via the New York Times. If you would like to write to me, if you have thoughts about the show, or if you just want to tell me a story, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. This program has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. It's free. Go get it wherever you get your apps. It's a, it's a quality app. Next week on the program, I have uh, Chip Cheek. He's got a debut novel out called Cape May, which has uh, been getting rave reviews. And we had a great time together. So stay tuned for Chip Cheek. If you want to know something funny is that I had Chip on the, on the show. He was here, and I don't think I ever asked him about his name during our conversation, which is egregious and I think we talked about it after we had stopped taping it's like a nickname I think I forget what was it
I forget. Anyway, 